So Money, episode 586, Patrick McGinnis, author of The 10% Entrepreneur. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. What if I told you you could keep your nine to five and become an entrepreneur? Welcome to So Money, everyone. Isn't that so money? I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today says being a business owner does not have to be an all or nothing proposition. Patrick McGinnis is here to offer advice on how to be a part-time entrepreneur. He's a venture capitalist and author of the international bestseller, The 10% Entrepreneur. Live your startup dream without quitting your day job. And Patrick practices what he preaches. He is a 10% entrepreneur himself, and outside his day job, he has built a diverse and global portfolio of investments, including top tech companies. And I know a lot of you want to learn more about how to gradually become your own boss, so let's just jump right in. Here is Patrick McGinnis. Patrick McGinnis, welcome to So Money, the 10% entrepreneur. Such a breath of fresh air. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Farnoosh. And I say that because you, as you state in your book, we, when we think of entrepreneurship, I think of like the Gary Vaynerchuk School of Entrepreneurship. And some <laughs> of you may know what I'm talking about. Gary's very intense. He's actually said that, you know, there's a lot of like phony entrepreneurs out there. Unless you're thinking and doing and being this business person all day, every day, you're not really an entrepreneur with a capital E. And, and you are, I think what you're trying to do is, is really noble. You're trying to say to everybody, hey, we can all have a piece of this pie. You can all experiment with this. And the best part is you don't know where it could take you. But in the meantime, you get to keep your health benefits <laughs> and your paycheck. Exactly. I think, you know, there's been this, uh, I, I always think of Mark Cuban, who I love, by the way. So Mark Cuban, if you're listening, you know, I'm sending you all my love. But okay. this idea that people go on Shark Tank and they're told, unless you are living on the side of the road in a box, eating ramen for every meal and suffering, uh, you're not an entrepreneur. I think that's a very um, a dated way of thinking about entrepreneurship. And it's also, it's a very exclusive way that it basically excludes a lot of people who would be great entrepreneurs, but maybe aren't in the life circumstances to become entrepreneurs today. So what I want to do is give all of those people on ramps to be able to do it. And you may not have the money, not just uh, the timing it may not be right, but you may not have the money in the bank. And yes, many entrepreneurs bootstrap and start with nothing and they get loans. But um, like I said, if you have a family, there's something to be said about having your benefits kick in, continuously kick in while you're tweaking away at this, this side project. Uh, Martha Stewart was working on Wall Street while she was catering parties on the weekends. And, <laughs> and you've got a lot of great stories in this book about people like that. Um, the, the college grad who started his own lobster roll empire while working, you know, like most college students working a job that they get when they come out of school, not their dream job, but a job that pays the bills. Um, you've got a, a mom who had a side project of designing and selling children's clothing, which has now grown to be a huge hit. So is the goal to then become a 100% entrepreneur that you start 10%, but really you're pushing people to really go for the full, the full benefits? 
Not necessarily. And in fact, you know, th- this is really about a couple of different ways of approaching entrepreneurship. So I have five different types of 10% entrepreneurs, one of which is the founder, the example you gave of that person who has a great idea and they started on the side because they can't afford to go full time, but also because they want to test that idea before jumping in full time, recognizing that by doing something on the side first, they can actually de-risk the whole thing and have a better chance of succeeding. But another type of sort of 10% entrepreneur is somebody who will never leave their full-time job, but will invest in new companies or be an advisor where they invest their time for ownership in new companies. And they'll do that with lots of different companies. And so, for example, I've invested in over 20 different ventures over the last six years. I have a day job. I'm not looking to leave that day job, but I've used entrepreneurial activities, investing, advising, and startups in order to create a diversified portfolio of ownership positions and exciting companies that teach me new things give me upside. Um, but I'm not, I'm not, maybe I'll become a full-time entrepreneur someday, but I haven't found that thing yet that really has convinced me that I want to do that. You know, entrepreneurship has been around since the dawn of time. We can thank entrepreneurs for giving us electricity, for giving us the wheel, for giving us the iPhone. But it seems like right now, and I'm sure you've experienced this, this is probably why you wrote the book, that there is more and more of this hunger, this appetite for learning how to become an entrepreneur, for living the entrepreneurial lifestyle. Is it a phase? Where are we going to be in 20 years? What's going to be the new conversation? Are we going to go back to wanting and missing the nine to five, the, the having a life that is a little bit more formatted or a little more, you know, predictable working at a, at a company. What do you think? What, what, how would you describe where we're at right now in this entrepreneurial craze? Yeah. So what's happened and we have, you know, the secular trends. Trend number one is that technology has made it really cheap to start a company. So you and I could come up with an idea right now, have a website up, have a company formed, have the thing in business promoted on social media, all for probably less than $100. And so those types of things, when I started my career as a venture capitalist 15, 20 years ago, um, that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the barriers to entry for entrepreneurship have really fallen. And as a result, getting financing and getting people to invest in your company is far easier than the past. You don't need to get on a plane to Silicon Valley and get some venture capitalist to write you a million dollar check. You can pass the hat among your friends, go to a local angel investment group. There's all these things that are happening. And as a result, anybody can really be an entrepreneur. And you see uh, that uh, I saw some stats recently that 40% of millennials have side hustles, 30% of Americans in general, 25% of Brits. So people are doing things on the side. And not all of those are ventures where you have an ownership stake. They may be, for example, driving for Uber or something that's more about the gig economy. But I think the takeaway here and what I see is that there are a lot of people who are looking for opportunities to do things outside of their day jobs because they recognize that their day job isn't stable because maybe they're afraid of being, um, you know, sort of outsourced or, or downsized, but also because they see opportunity all around them and they see people who they know who have started businesses that are actually making real money and creating real opportunity on the side. What I think is going to change and where I really want to play in the reason that I wrote this book is that I watched all these people doing these things and I thought to myself, this is great. People need to focus. They need to do things that they can be successful at and they need to think like owners. Driving for Uber is fine, but you never own anything. The day you stop driving is the day you never get another check from Uber. I want people to start things that they can own, that they can grow and that they can eventually sell. And so what are the trends in those ways? What what are you seeing people do? Are we in a creative economy? Are we in an economy that is 
largely all about coming up with a service that can let people do more in less time? Yeah, so I think it's all of the above. And what what I see people doing more and more is in with the 10% approach is people are saying, okay, I have a skill set. And that skill set could be anything. It could be a creative skill set. Like I can design clothing or I can uh, paint a mural. But it could also be something like I know how to build a website or I know how to come up with a marketing plan. And what they recognize is, yeah, they got this day job and they put in their you know, 40, 50, whatever number of hours a week. But that's not all they are. People are no longer defined by what their day job is. And so they can take those skills, those very valuable skills, and contribute those to new entrepreneurs with new companies who could never afford to hire them full time. So for example, there's a great example in the book of a woman named Beth Ferreira. And Beth had been um, the COO of a company called Etsy that I'm sure many people know Etsy and lots of 10% entrepreneurs start there, right? So Beth is super experienced, knows operations for startups really well. And on the side, while she was working at Etsy, she was trading her time as an advisor, sitting on advisory boards of startups to become an owner in shares, like companies like Birchbox. And, and so I think that's what we're going to see more of is people taking their skills with them. And instead of maybe looking to make a little bit of money on the side, thinking, how can I be an owner of something that will grow? How can I trade my time in all kinds of different services, anything from a service that saves you money to some sort of new business um, that isn't planned on e-commerce? At the end of the day, we can all avail ourselves of the internet to get services cheaply. So we can you know, use freelancers or international talent if we need to hire people to help us build something. But we can also sell to anybody in the world. And I think that's where business is going to continue to go. How do you know when it's a good time to transition to a 20% entrepreneur, a 100% entrepreneur? You know what I mean? So you've got the side, you've got not the side hustle, but the side kind of project that that's percolating, maybe making you a profit margin. So uh, when do you recommend people start to quit, look at quitting the day job? So let me give you the example of the Polly Patwa, who we mentioned a bit earlier, who's the fashion designer, because she's kind of, she did, she ran the gamut. So she started out and she uh, was working designing bedspreads for one of these uh, companies that, you know, make, you know, those companies that make bedspreads that are branded with Polo and Miss mm-hmm. Claiborne or whatever. She was, that's what she did. She would help design these bedspreads. And then she had her, her, her son and she was at home on maternity leave and her mom started sending her clothes from India. She dressed up her son in these baby clothes and everybody loved them. And so she thought, this is kind of interesting. She invested $5,000 got some samples made, took them to a trade show, sold out at her first trade show and was basically already in business. So she got this really quick surge of affirmation for her product. And she also, you know, she is the product. She's from India originally, so she can kind of really authentically sell this product. But she couldn't leave her job. So she started running it on nights and weekends out of her apartment, you know, figuring out how to how to get this thing to scale, setting up a website on the cheap, all these sorts of things. Didn't raise any money, just kind of bootstrapped it as it grew. And what happened was eventually one of her um, clothing items was featured in People magazine and all of a sudden demand spiked. She started to build a name for herself. So she went to her employer and said, listen, I have this thing I'm working on. I don't want to go full time. I think it's great, but I love working here as well. Could we do 50-50? I'll work two and a half days for you, two and a half days on my idea. You know, it's hard to find great people 
And this employer said, no problem. We'd love to keep you. No problem. And so she, you know, theoretically could have maybe gone full time, but she wanted to have that security. She did that for five years. And then at the end of the fifth year, she looked at her numbers. She looked at the growth trajectory. She looked at the money she was making and she determined that she would be able to run this full time. So the takeaway is number one, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be 10% or 100%. It can be 50, 50 or 60, 40. The second thing is, I really encourage people not to leave their day job until A, they can afford to live as they want, or B, um, they can find, for example, if you can't afford to live as you want and you, and you can't get financing or something like that, um, go find a partner who can help you out. But there's really great ways that you can scale while maintaining control of everything around you. Patrick, you're very familiar with investing in other businesses. And often on this show, when we have entrepreneurs who have or who have come to a, a point in their business where they're deciding, should I take money from an investor? Should I not? So it comes sometimes with strings attached and responsibilities you may not want. Uh, how would you advise an entrepreneur on how to decide how much or whether to even take money from an investor? Yeah, this is uh, such an important question. I'm glad you asked it because often, you know, I'm an investor, right? I've invested in my career in 20, 30 companies. And so you would think I would say to you, well, yeah, just, you know, raising money is the best thing ever. I will tell you with complete honesty, as much as I love um, many of my colleagues in the industry that um, I encourage people to wait as long as they can to raise money. And the reason why, and this goes back to something that uh, my friend Beth Ferreira, who was at Etsy, told me, and I never forgot when she said this to me. She said, fundraising isn't about money, it's about control. And it's so true. The minute you raise money from somebody else, you now have new people in your company. They may have rights that they can use to uh, affect how you run your business and you have a boss. And that can be a very good thing because it can bring discipline to the company. It can bring new ideas and the capital can be invested into growth. But oftentimes, if you're not quite ready, if you don't have quite the right partner, it can create a lot of headaches for you as an entrepreneur. And so what I encourage people to do is wait as long as possible so that they're in, they have as much leverage as possible going into a negotiation. They're in the best position they can be. And then when they do raise money, that they find people who are experienced, that they talk to people this person has invested in in the past, and they look to sell you know a, a minority stake that doesn't have a ton of rights attached to it so that they don't have somebody who can all of a sudden come into the company, change management, fire them, you know, cause them to sell the company, all kinds of things that if you don't have a good lawyer or if you don't read your contract could end up in the deal that you sign. We've had a number of guests on this show talk about how they have been ousted from the very companies they started, which I mean, there you go. It happens. And uh, it's never... Although they look back and they're like, oh, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. At the time, you're pretty devastated. Definitely. And I've been on the other side of that conversation where say you have a startup and the, the founder you know, did very well in the early days and then you came in and invested millions of dollars and the company isn't doing well. What are you going to do? If you have a fund and you have investors and you have a fiduciary responsibility, you're going to make changes to try to save that investment. And oftentimes that will work out, but it doesn't feel good. Uh, the founder goes through a lot of heartache. And even if they end up making money in the end, many times, and I'm sure these people you've spoken with in the past on your show have said, like they will not make that mistake again. Like next time around, <laughs> they're going to do it totally differently. 
We talk often about financial philosophies on this show. You've shared a lot already about how to approach your business in a financial way and make sure you have runway, don't quit your day job, be smart. In your personal life, what's your money mantra? I'm from the state of Maine, a place where people always live within their means. And so what I really believe is never live above your means. I'm really careful. I have a spreadsheet that's updated on a monthly basis of how much money I have, what's invested where, what do I expect to look like. And I only invest and I only spend uh, what I think is, you know, a reasonable amount, keeping lots of cushion. That way I know that I will never get into a situation where I'm in trouble. And in fact, had I not done that in the 2008 financial crisis, I was working on Wall Street. My company blew up. I lost my bonus. It was a disaster. Had I not lived by that mantra, I would have been in big trouble. Money keeps you out of trouble. I like that. Mm -hmm. It's a good mantra. What's a failure you experienced, a financial failure, something that you learned a great deal from that that still haunts you, but in a good way. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, it's like a friendly ghost, right? right. <laughs> um, well, you know, the, the whole reason I came up with this and I, I told you just now that I, I was working in during the financial crisis of 2008 at AIG, which was the biggest flop. I mean, it was a trillion dollar company that was nationalized. We lost our bonuses and I actually owned stock in AIG, which I remember buying it. And we had this employee stock discount program where you got a 15% discount if you bought it. And I thought to myself, what a great arbitrage it was. And, you know, I was so, I was so pleased with myself when I would buy that stock. And then in the space of a couple of days, it fell 97% and was basically worthless. And so what I learned from that experience was you must diversify. So I was working at a company, I owned a bunch of its shares, the company blew up, the shares went to zero, I had no diversification. And thank God I had, you know, cash in, in the bank, I was, you know, sort of heavy on cash. But had I not done that, I would have been bad shape. And in fact, some of the long standing employees of AIG lost everything. And so as a result, that's what made me think I've got to build a portfolio of things, my 10%. And that's why I got started. Sounds like you recovered pretty quickly. Well, it sounds that way, but no, it was a long process. In fact, I, when the, um, you know, now I have the space of time, right? It's been, you know, seven, eight, nine years. But in fact, when that happened, not only did it hit me sort of from a career perspective. And, you know, I sort of felt like my, my resume was blown up and that I'd lost a lot of money, but it hit me emotionally. And I felt very, um, I felt like the world, I felt, I always thought I kind of had control. I was like, you know, I went to Harvard business school, like what could go wrong, right? My career will always be fine, even if everything else goes downhill. And I realized that I had very little control and it was very frightening to me. So I actually became very, uh, I would say, very uh, depressed and nervous for a while. But over time, what I found was that taking control and building something for myself actually was the best way to feel a lot better about the world around me. Is there anyone that goes to Harvard Business School and ultimately fails? I mean, yes, failure is going to be a part of your journey, but are there any classmates where you're like, man, that person really didn't do much with him or herself? Well, you know, I would say, so I have a couple answers to that. Well, first of all, some people end up in jail. Jeffrey Skilling. Oh, right? well, sure. <laughs> um, but he which, had a good ride for a while, you know. He, uh, he did. He did. I mean, there. So I would say, first of all, I as um, 
I, I, what I love about HBS is I think there is an external view that a lot of people are super arrogant and, and whatever. People tend to be much more down to earth. And I think people do recognize that there's lots of different ways to fail. You may look good on paper and have a lot of money in the bank, but you may have a miserable, you know, relationships or vice versa. And that, you know, success is, is, is defined by each one of us and stuff like that. I know that sounds a little bit metaphysical, but it is true. But I would say I have been surprised how many people I know were really, their careers were violently upended by the changes we've seen across America in the last 10 years and across the world. And some of those people don't recover. And those are the people that never come to reunion. It's really hard to show up to that 10 year reunion where you have classmates who are like, have absolutely destroyed it. Um, and there are people that have, you know, done, I think less than they ever thought they would. Is anybody truly destitute? Uh, I don't, I would hope not, but there are definitely people who, um, I think not so much that they failed in an adject sense, but they've really failed what they thought they could achieve. And risen from failure. You know, it's not, it's not having failed is not the failure. It's what you do after that, you know, that defines you. Definitely underdogs. I think, What's really hard for people in, 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 in the MBA world, and it's not just Harvard, it's any of, you know, any MBA program. A lot of people, they got into that MBA program because they were successful or, you know, think about, you know, not just MBAs, but any career path, you move ahead because you're successful. I don't know one single person. And I know a lot of people who's had a clear path where there's been not, when they haven't had one bad thing go wrong. Everybody, whether it's today, tomorrow and 10 years down the line, will they'll have themselves tested. And it's that moment you figure out what you're made out of and it's your chance to rise to the occasion. And if you can do it, everything from that point forward, you appreciate so much more. Some people don't even go to business school or they go and they drop out, which begs the question, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, be an entrepreneur. Why go to school? That is definitely a school of thought. Definitely. And I, and I, I, you know, MBA is a great thing. I really enjoyed it. It's certainly not for everybody. It's certainly a lot of requirement. I would say for me, it gave me the, the red of, uh, the network of contacts and some of the, the approaches that have helped me to think about the things that I've done. But some people will not, you know, you know, you're going to go to college to be in and you could start out at 16, you know, peddling things in the street and move up to be CEO of a major company. It's, that's certainly not unprecedented at all. So I think what it's more about is whether you go do an MBA, whether you go to conservatory and study classical piano, or whether you don't finish high school, it's about finding things that you want to work hard at, finding things that you're good at, combining the things you enjoy, and then running at it and making it, making it happen. What's a habit that you practice, Patrick, a financial habit that helps you with your financial well-being? So, you know, for me, it's really about diversification. So I have, uh, I have some, uh, investments that are in very high risk startups. I have some investments that are in companies that are far more mature. I have some investments that are in real estate, which is a far less risky asset. I have some that are in the stock market and some that are in cash. So what I've tried to do is, if you look at the average family office, like a wealthy family office, they put about 10% of their investments in higher risk types of things. That is kind of how I think about my 10%. I am also, you know, I would never invest more in the startups and the venture capital kind of stuff than I can afford to lose, but it gives me the sort of all the upside that I get from it that makes it worth it. All right, Patrick, are you ready for some so money fill in the blanks? It's kind of a ritual around here. I start a sentence and then you finish it really fast. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. If I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is? Give my parents uh, a uh, lake house. Nice. Are they, are they set for retirement or are they 
What? Where? Yeah, they are. My father worked for the U.S. government, which is um, which has got a great pension program. So they're very good. But you know, I would like them to have access to the water in the summertime. So you know, maybe I'll get them one someday anyway. But that'd be my first thing. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is technology. Things that make my life more efficient, whether it's an iPhone or, or anything like that. The one thing I splurge on, like so big, big purchase. Maybe you do it regularly, once a year, every month. Yeah, luxury travel. I like to go crazy places, but I like to go there with some comfort, you know, so that that's important. Traveling 30,000 feet above the air in with comfort, that is a luxury these days, apparently. If you've been paying attention to the headlines, it's uh, <laughs> traveling these days. I don't know. It's scary. It's scary, Behave man. yourself, everybody. Behave yourselves. Behave yourselves, everybody. Yeah. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is? That if you invest in real estate, all that debt makes your equity sort of grow faster. You know, it's the idea of leveraging yourself. Yeah, it's the million. It's a uh, rich dad, poor dad. It's Robert Kiyosaki's yeah. whole whole platform. We totally. been on the show. And last but not least, I'm Patrick McGinnis. I'm the ten percent entrepreneur, and I'm so money because because I'm doing things that I love without having to quit my day job. And don't we all don't we all wish we could do that? And we can if we read your book, Patrick. Thank you so much. And congratulations. It's been, a, it's been a year since the book has come out. And um, we wish you all the more success. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Thanks so much to Patrick for stopping by. His website is patrickmcginnis.com. He's also on Twitter at PJ McGinnis. To get a copy of his free ebook, go to patrickmcginnis.com slash build your 10. That link is on somoneypodcast.com. And while you're there, you can download the transcript. And you can also leave me a message or a question for the Friday episodes. Just click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your thoughts. Tell me what's on your money mind. I'll try to solve it. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope your day is so money. Money.